You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow and take your next steps of faith, how you can get involved in community, and how you can serve and be good news in our city. Thanks again for listening. It's not lost on me that when I come up here and I you know, preach or bring the message that the people who arrive in a room like this arrive with bombarded minds. I mean, think about the stuff that you've walked in the door with today, maybe anxieties you've brought in here. There are times, I'm sure, where you've walked in this room having just been in a fight with your spouse. There are times that the work drama from Monday through Friday has weighed really super heavy on you, and your mind may not be there, but your body still is. Maybe you are already carrying the anxieties of the week ahead. And on top of this, you and I are filled with this flurry of information that we consume on a daily basis that can leave us in a state of what researchers have called something called cognitive overload. The Mayo Clinic describes this as as a paralysis of information that leaves us unable to process and act on what we hear. How many people, with a show of hands, would say they've been in cognitive overload before? Two hands from some of you, yes. As a result, we feel, when we get these places, we feel frustrated and angry or we just check out altogether. We hit a wall and then just we're out. We're staring at our phone because we cannot handle any more information in our eyeballs and ears. It just can't be received. We're closing out this series called Enough this week where we have talked about finding freedom in our limitations. So the last few weeks we talked about Sabbath rest. We talked about stewarding our time. The question we've asked is, What if the limitations that we are always running into are actually gifts and not hindrances? What if the rest that we find ourselves in need of is not us coming to a place of of, of something bad, but coming to a place of something good? We've talked about money and our stuff. I'd venture to guess that a prominent experience for most of us when we have reached the end of our limitations, surpassing them, happens in a weekly, if not daily basis in our mind. Have you felt this week that your mind is overwhelmed? That your brain can no longer process what is happening around you? Have you ever found that place where you are physically rested but mentally cannot move? Have you shut down without warning because the processing of what is happening just cannot lead you any further? Typically, when we talk about our minds, when we're speaking of our brains, our minds, the way we think, we start with knowledge. We start with what we know in the church. But the truth is, we need to dig deeper beyond just what we know, but how we actually come to know what we know, and how we come to know that we know that we know it. How we steward this mind 
that God has given us, this information that you and I are consuming on a daily and weekly basis, how in reality we find this in discipleship. Now, we've heard this in Romans 12, which is a part of the lectionary that we used a few weeks ago. Romans 12, 2 tells us that not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, so following Jesus, it doesn't just change what we think. It doesn't just change the information that we consume. Following Jesus actually changes how we consume it. How we receive the information that we are taking in. And so as we move into this together today, I wanted to pray for this because I know you're coming in probably with lots of stuff on your mind. I am too. And I don't want to waste and I don't want to miss what God is speaking. I want to hear and to know what the Lord is speaking today to me and to you, right? I want this to be real. I don't want it to go in one ear and out the other and never touch with the, the deepest places in my heart that need to be changed, right? Right? Let me pray for us then. So Holy Spirit, you do the work of renewing our mind. You do the work of taking us beyond just new facts about God to having hearts and minds and whole selves transformed into the image of Jesus. And so today, today, God, will you meet us here through your word, by your spirit. Would you awaken our minds and hearts to what you're saying and doing among us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Mark chapter 12. You've hopefully read maybe this passage before. There's some religious leaders, and they come to Jesus, and they're, they're questioning him, and it's actually a trap. They ask him, what's the greatest commandment? Now, in that time, there are 613 commandments that they're trying to keep in the Old Testament. It's a lot. So this is a trap. This is to get him to say something that he doesn't want out there when they ask him this sort of question. And Jesus famously replies by quoting Deuteronomy 6, except Jesus does something astounding. Jesus actually adds to Scripture. He takes what's in Deuteronomy 6, which says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. But Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he says something just a little bit different. Look with me on the screen. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. You notice the difference? Jesus added mind to Deuteronomy 6. This word dianoia literally means the center of our understanding, our thoughts, the way we think, not just the information that we consume. It's how you and I process the world. And the calling is simple, to not just use our mind, but Jesus is teaching us that the greatest commandment calls us to love God with our mind. So what we need to ask today as, as a people is what does it mean for you and I to love God with our minds? What does it mean to know God? And what does it mean to know what God wants us to know? Now, the Bible begins this framework of how we understand this in Proverbs 1-7. This is what forms our foundation. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning 
of knowledge. In other words, everything that we can know and everything that we can begin to know that we know begins with a posture like this towards God. Now, this can very easily get misunderstood and misinterpreted and abused in some very dangerous ways when it's taken outside of context. Now, I, many, many years ago, when I proposed to my wife, not to brag, but eh, I proposed at the Grand Canyon. Top that. On the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Now, I have a fear, a slight fear of heights. So, as you walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, I felt a very healthy fear. Because I recognized that as big and as beautiful and majestic as what I'm standing there seeing at this moment, it's a sunset where I'm about to propose I also know that in the beauty and majesty of this, I respect, I have a reverence for the possibility that my, my clumsy butt can fall in this thing, right? So I'm staying at the distance I need to in the beauty of this moment with a healthy fear, with a reverence. It's not a fear that pushes me away. It is a fear that draws me in. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not saying to be afraid of God. It's saying to enter into relationship with him in a healthy, reverent way. Proverbs Proverbs tells us that everything we know then begins with that knowledge, begins with that posture of coming to God with that reverent, holy fear. And as hopeful as that is for us to know that this God of majesty and, and, and beauty is in front of us, we also recognize in the scriptures there is much about God that you and I cannot know, right? Isaiah 55 says that, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I want you to know today that real, genuine faith that you and I have always makes room for mystery. It embraces that there is much that we can know about God, but it is okay to say There is much that we cannot know as well. What the scripture reveals gives room for mystery, gives room for a theological answer as brave enough as I don't know. There's a lot of times you'll be asked questions about why God has done this or why the scriptures mean this. And I'm telling you, the very best answer you can give is, I don't know. There's mystery to how we know God. But at the same time, I want to also make clear that the Bible is not anti-knowledge. Unfortunately, the church as a whole, in our country at least, has often developed a reputation of being anti-intellectual. At times we have been known, as you have probably experienced, for belittling education Some of you have experienced having your questions shut down, your doubts dismissed, your questions outright called heresy, and you have seen, as I have seen probably, a false dichotomy between faith 
and science. In truth, though, faith and science, they not only, I believe, coexist, they, they complement one another. Most of Christian history, we see the beauty of the church and science together finding the mysteries of God before us. One of the most influential Christians of our time is a man by the name of Dr. Francis Collins. Anybody heard of him? Francis Collins is responsible for mapping the human genome. He began the Human Genome Project. He is a brilliant mind. He is the founder of BioLogos, which I highly recommend you check out. It's an organization that connects Christians to resources of of, of connecting science and faith. I've had many uh, parents who have come to me whose children in school have run into this problem of where does my faith and science line up. BioLogos is a phenomenal resource to connect you to these ideas. I highly, highly recommend it. All of this to say, as we come to the scriptures and talk about our minds, we need to know that the Holy Spirit is not asking you and I to turn off our brain. Okay? There is nothing in the scriptures that places a false dichotomy between what we feel and know in faith and how we learn together. When we root our knowledge here, In reverence for God, as the scriptures say, we can pursue knowledge and what we can know about being known simply as more than gaining facts and conclusions. Not just that we know something, but how we know it. The Bible, as we talk about this, even this word know, it gives us a far bigger picture. In the Hebrew, the word for know is this word yada. Yada, yada, yada. means no, no, no. K-N-O-W, but no, and it's this idea of way bigger than just head knowledge. It's this idea of an understanding that comes from you and I walking and experiencing something for ourselves. So not just gaining the right information, to know something is having lived it out ourselves. That's how the scriptures understand knowledge. So you believe something not because you agree with it, but you believe something as you act on that belief itself. Dallas Willard writes that we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it, we believe something when we act as if it's true. That's a big deal. Now, I grew up understanding that my my spiritual growth, my understanding of how I grew in Jesus was a very, very intellectual process, or at least a very knowledge-based process. For most of my life, I believed a lie that I believe many of you have experienced too, and that is that information equals transformation. In other words, I just cram my brain with enough right stuff about God, enough knowledge, and eventually that would make me grow. So if I'm not growing, it must be because I'm not doing the right Bible study. If I'm not growing, I need to listen to more podcasts from this person right here. If I'm not growing, maybe the church is not what I need to be. I need to go somewhere else where they're feeding me better. It's all knowledge-based. The idea that if I stuff my brain with the right facts about God, eventually growth will happen. How does that work out, though? Not great. Now, right knowledge, good theology about God is vital and important and beautiful to learn. But in reality, 
Our bodies have just as much power in changing our minds, in changing how we grow as our minds itself. One of my favorite quotes, this man, Henry Nouwen, if you hear me quote somebody more than anybody, it's almost always Henry Nouwen. He says, you don't think your way into a new kind of living, you live your way into a new kind of living. Of thinking. I'm going to say that again because you need to hear that sink in there. You don't think your way into a new kind of living. You live your way into a new kind of thinking. Meaning that our minds, what we think and know, we need our bodies just as much as our minds in our pursuit of spiritual growth. Sometimes it's our bodies that helps our minds believe. Sometimes it's obedience in our life that begins to shape and think through how we actually know God, it forms us in this way. But the Bible, when it talks about our mind, it doesn't speak to just what we know. It also speaks to how we think and what we think and how we love as well. Because if all of this is true, the goal of our faith is not just to arrive at the right facts about God and the Bible. It's beyond how many of you know people who get all the right facts about God but are still just buttholes, right? Surely there's more to that. Surely there is more than arriving at the right answers about God, that that's the height of where we go. That's why we do studies like emotionally healthy spirituality, because there's a lot of people that have arrived at these facts and then never go anywhere further. We need to go deeper. The goal of our faith is far more than just the right facts about God. We're here to know and be known by God. We're here to know and be known by one another, by the knowledge of God and ourselves and our neighbors. Knowledge without love, in fact, the Bible says, is meaningless. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries of knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Now, I'm not against the gift of prophecy. I'm not against fathoming all mysteries and all knowledge. Good things, right? I would love to have a faith to move mountains, right? But you can do all that. And if you don't have love, the scripture says you are nothing. Paul goes even further in the same book, says knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Whew, write that down. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. I've watched too many Christians believe that the more knowledge they gain, it will make them finally more and more like Jesus. And my friends, I'm here to tell you today that it is the beauty of God being known and knowing and the love of God receiving this knowledge that we find the growth that we are looking for. There is almost nothing more dangerous than a Christian who is armed with facts about God but is unable to give and receive love. Henry Nouwen says in another book, he says that most men who build Christian empires are the ones who cannot find themselves giving and receiving love. The aim of what we know, the the aim and the goal of how we think as Christians, all of it is moving us towards love. And so while you and I, we, we, we... 
honor good doctrine and we honor right knowledge about God and that's foundational. We know that the aim of what we know, the aim of the knowledge that we gain in moments like this is always, always, always going to be love. And because of this, the Bible encourages us to steward our thoughts in a way that forms us into the image of Jesus. I love this passage here. It says, we demolish arguments, this is Paul speaking, and, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, this is a loaded verse, but this is really important. Every day, thoughts enter our minds that are contrary to what is true about God, what is true about us, and what is true about our neighbors. We have these thoughts, right? Stuff comes into your minds on a daily basis that I bet you wish you didn't think. I bet you wish didn't come through your brain. Paul is telling us to measure what we think, the thoughts that arise within our minds against Christ, and if they don't align with the goodness and the beauty of God revealed in Jesus to take it captive, to literally, in other words, don't allow that thought to grow into a pattern of thinking. Stop it in its tracks. I used to hate this verse, honestly, because when I read it, it sounded like, well, just stop thinking about it. How many people have ever told that to your kids, or if you have kids, or somebody else's kids? Don't think about it. It doesn't work. Somebody said that to you probably before. Well, why don't you just stop thinking about it? Kind of hard, right, sometimes? Our minds are difficult places. Those are not always helpful words. I love, because of this, learning about the intersection of faith and neuroscience. Our brains, you and I have brains that are made up of 100 billion neurons. And these neurons, they're always at work. They're at work right now as you listen here today, and they're forming the way we think and the way we feel. Ken Ball writes about this. He says that neurons are cells that process and transmit information in the brain that through synapses, bridge, uh, bridges of electrical signals that connect neurons to each other and carry the transmitted messages. Neurons are birthed by thoughts. In other words, the more you think the same thought the more neurons are developed around that thought and the stronger and more influential that thought becomes. Ball goes on to share that there's something called a Hebb's theory which teaches that thoughts that are repeatedly, continuously formed, they, they, they move us into ingrained patterns in our brain that whether we are intentional about it or not, form us into a default way of thinking. Meaning that if we keep thinking about something or seeing something in the same way over and over and over again, our brain will be literally formed to make it easier to think like that. In other words, when we allow thoughts to run against the way of love, when we allow ideas to run against the image and the character of Christ to continue, when we don't take them captive, to use Paul's words, we continue to see others around us through this lens of fear and anger rather than love over and over again. We are reshaping the chemistry of our brain when we do that. Sometimes I know 
that changing these patterns are difficult because a lot of times these patterns are formed by things like trauma and experiences that are outside our control, the way we think and feel, and it can feel sometimes hopeless. It can feel like impossible to break, but the good news that we see is that there is hope in not just changing our hearts and minds, but in the changing our brains as well. Kurt Thompson, who wrote this amazing book that I hope you all go by and read called The Anatomy of the Soul, I cannot recommend enough. He speaks to the hope that not only that we have in Christ, but that our minds, literally our brains, can be renewed. He writes that while it's true that established neural networks are most likely to fire, it's equally true that recent research demonstrates that our brains were created with beautiful and mysterious plasticity. That means our neurons can be redirected in ways that correlate with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Instead of automatically following the wired sequence of our old memory, with reflection, we can choose to create new pathways. Isn't that good news? That is a very scientific way to say that God can transform and renew our minds. That our brains and minds and hearts can change. Both science and scripture are testifying to what the gospel says, that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And not just in what we think, but in our whole selves, in our whole stories, our best days, our worst moments can be given over now to the one who loves us fully and completely and restores our soul. So as we close today, I want to close with this encouragement from Paul in Philippians 4.8. And I think this verse, in light of what we're looking at today, really gives a new light to what Paul is speaking. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The aim of what Paul, I believe, is saying is not just to think happy Christian thoughts. It's filling our minds with the kind of truth that helps us bring wholeness and intentional healing in our whole selves. It's unlearning patterns and relearning new patterns of thinking and feeling and knowing. It's turning off voices that tell us that we are worthless, we are hopeless, and, and not feeding the same cynicism that drives us deeper down the hole to feed our isolation and our self-sufficiency that feeds our, our cynicism and anger. It is turning off, especially in this next year, turning off voices on things like cable news and political networks that are telling you to hate your neighbors and hate your enemies. Silencing voices that misrepresent God, misrepresent your neighbor, and misrepresent yourself. So that instead of demonizing image bearers, we feed our minds with hope. We fill our whole selves with the hope that is in Christ. I believe it will be a spiritual discipline as we move into this next year to steward our minds with intentionality, to be able to put limits on what we are consuming and to fill our minds with the gospel hope that we have
in Jesus. Today, I hope you know that your brain is your ally and not your enemy, that God in flesh and Jesus Christ took upon not just a body, but a mind like ours. He laid down his life for us, forgave us of our sin, gave us new life in Jesus as we found the resurrection hope he has given into a time of communion together. We have elements here on the table. We have some on that table right there in the back. There's also some in the lobby. We encourage you every week to take this as a tangible, literal reminder that there is hope in the here and now. We can taste and see the goodness of God and what we receive. The cracker representing Jesus' body broken for us. The juice representing his blood shed for our sins. Today, and whatever the Lord is speaking to you and calling you to, I just encourage you to move into that, to respond, to not waste this moment as we respond to what the Lord is speaking today. So, Father, the psalmist says, I have still quieted my soul. And how deeply we need minds to be cleared and renewed and directed towards the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, I just pray against the voices that we have consumed that have formed pathways of thinking that have pushed us very difficult, even demonizing ways towards our neighbors today as we receive these elements, as we respond to what you're thinking in us and thinking through us and speaking to us, may you, Lord, today renew our minds. 